It's good to be with everyone this evening. My name is Joseph Bianco. I'm the assistant pastor at City Reformed, and I'll be leading us in in the sermon today. It's from Psalm 43. I want to welcome you to our evening service. If you're new here, this is our uh, second service of the day. So we have one service in the morning during the summers, uh, two during the school year, and then uh, always an evening service, which we have here. So our morning service is in Oakland, but our evening service is here, and that's intentional. Um, to be a broader witness in the city of Pittsburgh, to have a smaller service that you can invite friends to. Um, And we have seen a lot of uh, fruit produced from this service particularly. We've seen people come to faith, and it has been very encouraging uh, to be with you all in this evening service. So let's turn attention to the reading of God's word. Our psalm is from Psalm 43. Uh, I will read it, and then our response at the end will be, thanks be to God. reminding ourselves, as Dave said this morning, that this is God's word. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your inerrant, infallible word that is able to save our lives and our souls. Father, we thank you that your word is without error. Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us just as you intended here. Lord, that it is powerful to work and that it will go out and it will accomplish that which you have caused it to accomplish. Father, I pray now that you would cause it to accomplish that tonight in our hearts, Lord, that we would be quick and attentive to hear what you have to say, Father, that you would work through my weakness, and even, Father, that you would use my sin, Father, for your purposes. Lord, we look to you expectantly, we pray it in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So our psalm uh, today is categorized as an individual lament, so meaning this psalm is a cry to God for help from an individual. Uh, Great evil and injustice and oppression has come upon this person, and we too are invited, as we read this psalm, to consider our own laments in our lives. So this psalm is particularly meaningful to me due to some events that happened in my own life. I won't go into detail, but I have had my own share of oppression and evil happen to me, and I'm happy to share it with anyone after the service, but it probably would be inappropriate in that public setting. Um, However, before I left for seminary, I worked with um, children who had suffered great oppression and great evil. Uh, They came from homes with abusive parents, maybe from homes uh, that couldn't provide for them, or homes where maybe they were being taught to be or become the abusers. It was one of the hardest jobs of my life because your whole job 
at this place is to care for the abuse of these children, and it just results in a lot of chaos. So often, mental health was associated with these children, and so my title was mental health care worker, number one. One of the reasons I took the job uh, was because it was a Christian organization that I was working for, and it gave me the opportunity to, to share the gospel. It was a motive that finally pushed me to seminary, that I was able to share the gospel with the children that I worked with. It meant a lot to me because I knew that if I was not allowed to share Jesus in a job like this, that as much as I wanted to help these children, they could never truly be healed without God's Spirit working in their hearts. The hardest to help were the ones who thought that they did not need help, and especially the ones who certainly thought they did not need God. They would fight and they would punch. It was a very physical job. And these are 17 and 18 year old boys I worked with. So these are not like little children punching. Um, So our psalmist today confronts that part of our hearts. The part that thinks, I don't need help. We don't need help. The part that takes our hurt, the way that maybe we've been oppressed or hurt, that injustice done against us and makes that the ultimate thing in our life rather than God. So is that you? It's certainly me. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I have allowed injustice or oppression done against me to become ultimate in my life rather than God, rather than Jesus. But our text says that our help comes when God sends his light and his truth. Jesus is the light, and Jesus is the truth. And through him alone can we find hope from evil. Through Christ comes hope for the oppressed. So I want to look at this truth by first understanding the nature of the injustice we're looking at in our text, the salvation that's offered, and then lastly, what is, this, what is waiting for this hope look like? So the nature of injustice, salvation, and then waiting with hope. So let's look at the nature of injustice. So our psalm here was most likely originally part of Psalm 42. So you don't have Psalm 42 in front of you. It's not in your bulletin. But I want you to note that there is a refrain with the same wording of verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul twice in Psalm 42? And there is also no title, if you notice, for Psalm 43. But there is a title for Psalm 42, which is to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So most likely this psalm is composed by someone of the family of Korah. Now this, is, uh, this family of Korah is the same family of Korah's rebellion that you can read about in, in the book of Numbers. So they're a family of Levites, they're a priestly clan. Now it's important because Psalm 43 summarizes Psalm 42, which is why I'm not having us do 42 and 43. It would be a little long. So I'm giving, we're doing the summer, summarizing psalm. So in both psalms, the author is separated from God in the temple. Verses 3 to 4. He wants to come back to the temple where God dwells so that he can worship there. But the author is more than just separated. The author is forcibly separated. Verse 1. By an ungodly people, by the deceitful and the unjust man. So we don't know how he ended up separated from the temple. It's possible uh, that this is written 
when God's people are in exile. And it's certainly written after the time of King David. But what we do know is that this man is suffering under oppression by the hand of an ungodly people. So literally in Hebrew, the wording is a people without God's chesed, without God's steadfast love, when you read the word ungodly people. So they don't know the love of God, and they treat the author with deceit and injustice. So a well-respected Hebrew scholar, um, Kyle and Dalich, I don't know if anyone's read them, explained that the meaning behind the Hebrew of unjustly here means roguish, mischievous conduct, utterly devoid of all sense of right. So this is a bad dude that the author is dealing with. There are not many people like this in my life that I have encountered, um, but you know these people if you've encountered them. This is a person that is out to hurt you, to take advantage of you, to deceive you, to take what belongs to you, and then in verse 2 at the end to oppress you. It's the kind of person that we're dealing with in this lament. So many commentators have taken stabs at the dark at what the situation is that the author is going through, and they've done it without any success. It's very hard to tell. Partly because the kind of language we're given here is generic language of oppression and suffering. It's language of ungodly, deceit, unjust, and then oppression. It's generic language that actually invites us to join ourselves with the author of this psalm. To ask those questions, in what ways has injustice been done against us? In what ways have we suffered in a a similar way? So, have you had something or someone do something unjust to you? Something wicked or mischievous? Have you experienced being deceived by someone? And are you left with an injustice? Have you had someone oppress you? Have you had someone treat you with abuse or contempt? So a pastor scholar who specializes in thinking about abuse throughout the Old Testament uh, said that while we don't see the word abuse used in Scripture, the closest word we actually have with the similar meaning is the word oppression. The word abuse is actually more of a modern word. But the concept of oppression is the same. It's someone using their power or force against a weaker person. So you might not have thought of abuse as a modern concept, but it is, but it's also an ancient concept. But it comes out with the idea of oppression. Clearly, we can think of a lot of situations going on today. There were protests downtown this week over the issue of Antoine Rose Jr., who was shot fleeing police. That we, the man we just prayed for in our uh, time of prayer. I personally was asked to sign petitions from, as an evangelical leader um, regarding the issue of separating children at the border uh, this week. We can think of injustices done in our society against women, injustices done against children. Even as Christians, we can think of the ways the church has committed historical sins or even present sins of racism. So I appreciated listening to our General Assembly. Our General Assembly is the yearly meeting of our denomination, of the leaders of our denomination. And we had, this year, 
um, which is it's good for all of us to kind of be aware of what's going on in our General Assembly, our, our first African-American moderator, um, which I give thanks to the Lord for. And last year, our uh, first Korean moderator, who uh, gave this one of the sermons this year during time of worship. And as he was speaking, uh, Preaching, I, I, I didn't attend, John attended, but I did watch this live stream on my vacation because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little Presbyterian nerdy. Um, but he was preaching this sermon and he was talking about this, uh, this overture we had given two years ago now, um, repenting of our sins of racism in our denomination. But he said that there's still the work of forgiving and reconciling to be done. And he said, we had a time of repentance about racism. How about we have a time now for forgiveness and reconciliation? So my point isn't to make anything political. It's to show you that the psalmist's words today have meaning for us societally, as a corporate body of Christ. But these words also have meaning for us individually. So again, have you personally been the victim of injustice or have you personally been oppressed? So maybe it's not what was done to you. Maybe it's something that just happened. Maybe that you're suffering under the oppression of a disease or something that you can't control. An illness or a relationship that is out of your control that's failing. Or the family that you were born into, you cannot control that. Or a tragedy that ruined your life. Maybe with the author, you look at God and you ask the question, verse 2, if you are the God in whom I take refuge, why have you rejected me? Why do I go on mourning? And what are these questions saying? They're saying that when injustice or deceit or oppressions happens to us, they can feel like supreme things. They can feel like ultimate things. Things that cannot be overcome. That when evil comes over me, it's as if we want to, we're tempted to throw up our hands and say, God has rejected me. So our temptation is to give power to the oppressor and to the act of oppression. And if you think I'm wrong, then why does abuse take so long to heal from? So my wife's a a licensed professional counselor And she will tell you that it takes years and years of therapy to heal from abuse. Why does deceit and injustice require so much work to heal from? Why is racial reconciliation not just a one and done apology, but something that requires years and years of relationship and true repentance and true reconciliation to heal? And while I want to affirm the seriousness, the gravity, the weight, the wickedness of any act of impression, oppression or any act of injustice against any person, hear me, I am not denying the gravity or the weight of any act of oppression. As a believer in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have to say that any Christian who puts their faith in Jesus, that there is no injustice or no oppression that is ultimate. Because we have a just God who sends out his light and truth, there is no justice, there is no oppression or deceit or evil that God will one day not make right. 
And this brings us to our second point, our salvation, verses 3 and 4. So if you're not a Christian here, or you're interested in God, or you're not certain, you're a skeptic about Christianity, have you considered the question of injustice? So what do I mean? I mean this, that the, que- the question of, for those who have been oppressed, who have experienced evil, who have been deceived, is pretty clear. It's, how can I be set free from the evil? From the injustice? And while my wife's work of counseling is good and helpful and doctors are good and helpful and cognitive behavioral therapy is good and helpful and a friend who listens to you and encourages you is good and helpful, those things will ultimately not make right what has been made wrong. So my wife will often say in her counseling sessions, she counsels Christians and non-Christians, that she can always only go so far with someone who doesn't know Jesus as his or her savior. Because while there is so much out there that is good and helpful, only one thing is ultimate. It's verse three. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. So ultimately, if you do not have the justice of God on your side, you will make everything else ultimate in your life. If you do not have God's justice, God's perfect justice, our Father, who will one day set all things to right, then you have no choice other than to make everything else in your life that was done to you, those hurts, those injustices, those deceits, into a supreme thing. And we don't just do it with evil. We do it with good things, too. We make our jobs, our families, our children, our wealth, our hopes, our dreams, our personalities into idols, and we worship them in the place of God. But here's where the gospel comes in. A Christian recognizes, I cannot save myself. I can't set everything right that has been done wrong to me. I can try, and I can probably make things better for a moment, for a time. I can listen to some music, and it might make me feel better for a moment. I can talk with a friend, and I can feel encouraged, Or maybe better, I can write my senator a letter and I can feel proud that I took part in some government work. But Christians recognize that without God sending for us, sending his light, sending his truth, leading us to himself, unless God does the work, we have no hope. Now I mentioned if you're a skeptic in the room or interested in Christianity, um, that this should convince you of why the existence of a savior of Jesus as your Savior is so vital. And it's because there is no answer to sin, to injustice, to oppression, to evil, other than an equal and a just payment. Other than some way that the evil is made right. And the good news for you and for all of us here is that the payment has been made. That light and truth have been sent Already, Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way to the Father. There is one way to be made right. One way to heal your heart. 
from abuse or injustice or oppression. There's one way to see the curse reversed in this world, and that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one way exactly because the abuse is so great, because the injustices are so wrong, because the deceit is so wicked, it requires someone far stronger than you, far stronger than me, far stronger than any government or organization or people. It requires an almighty being. It requires God to make right what has been done and made wrong. And the psalmist knows it. So um, Chris Pratt, who you'll know from Guardians of the Galaxy, um, recently received an MTV award. uh, And his speech, some of you might have said this was floating around Facebook. Uh, He gave nine, something like nine rules of Chris Pratt for living an awesome life, something like that. Um, I'm going to read you 6, 7, 8, and 9. So he said, number 6, he said, God is real. God loves you. God wants the best for you. Believe that. I do. He said, 7, learn to pray. It's easy and it's good for your soul. And then number 8, I won't repeat, he made a joke that would be inappropriate to say during a sermon, but you can go online and watch it. Not, Not an inappropriate joke, just an inappropriate joke during the sermon. And then number nine, he said this. He said, nobody's perfect. People will tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You're imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. Like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for by someone else's blood. Do not forget that. Do not take it for granted. During an MTV award. (laughs) In order to be set free from the sin of the world, even from our own sin, we have to receive grace. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, Joseph, I've been hurt, but maybe you're here today thinking, I've been that oppressor. The only way to be free is to recognize that we are imperfect, that we cannot save ourselves, that we need a gift, we need grace, and it is offered here today, now for you. You merely have to receive it by faith, by believing in Jesus as your Savior, and it is yours. That sounds easy, right? Um, So this brings us to our third point, which is, how can this be? How can we have and wait for this kind of hope? So if you've been tracking me with me so far, you should recognize a problem. I've been saying that only Jesus can make it right, and yet we still, consider to, we still continue to see injustice and oppression around us. So how can we hope that God will make all this right, that we are not waiting for nothing? And I believe verses 4 to 5 answer that question. You see, the psalmist has a particular relationship with God. God is, is not just the answer to his problems. He's not a genie that you rub and that you get things from. He is someone the psalmist deeply loves. Someone the psalmist has relationship with. I don't know about you, but if I was in his circumstance, being under this kind of oppression, this kind of evil, and injustice, these people hurting him, my response may not be, save me so I can go to worship you. But that is the author's response in our text. The author doesn't treat God is an idea. 
He treats him as a person, one he loves, one he's in relationship with, one he can trust. The text says that God is his exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. And he just wants to come back home so he can worship God again in the temple. So he can be with God again. So remember that unlike now, on this side of the cross, where we have Jesus dwelling spiritually with the people, then God dwelt in the temple. Meaning, you couldn't worship him just anywhere. You actually had to worship him at the temple. But we have Christ who has become, or who has made his people, his dwelling place. We become the very dwelling place for God. So many of you know that we're in the process of buying a church building. And this is not for morning worship. We have a particular mission to Oakland, uh, to the uh, university community, and we are continuing full force with that mission. Um, but most likely, we will be having this evening service at that location, which is in Greenfield, not far from here. And this is a good opportunity to remind us that God does not dwell in a building. He dwells in a people. So whatever happens in the process of buying property, this is the first property we would own as a church, our identity remains the same. God resides with his people as it always has resided with this church as long as we have existed, for the 14 years we've, we've, since we've been a plant, God's spirit has resided here and it will continue to reside with the people, not the building. So today, we have even more reason to hope, though, regardless of place, because we cannot be separated from God. Our souls are united to Christ. So the psalmist asked this question again of his soul. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He asked the question to interrogate his own heart. As if to say, soul, should you really be this cast down? Should you really be this much in turmoil? Are these things that are really happening to you ultimate? And his answer is no. His answer is hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. The author has full confidence that God will set things right because he knows his God relationally. God's not just an idea to him. He knows his character and he has experienced the mercy of grace and grace of God so that he can be assured. So Romans 8 came to my mind, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what can enable us to wait? What can enable you to wait? For God to set things right. The cross. That when we look at the cross and we see the death and the resurrection of our Savior, we have no doubt that if God loved us that much then, that he will not leave us now and that there is coming a day where he will set all things to right. The cross is where we meet our Savior relationally. And it's where we can be assured that he will come again. Christian hope is not a wishy-washy hope when you read the word hope in the Bible. 
Not like, I hope it will not rain. We have hope because when we look to the cross, we are assured of God's promises. And so we can wait for it with patience. And that is exactly how the author ends the psalm. He says, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The author knows God is coming. And it is a matter of time. The same truth applies not just to the societal oppression, to what we see of the injustices in the world, but it applies to your hearts and the things that have happened to you. God is in the business of redeeming and restoring. And you can have full assurance of his work in your life. May we all with confidence have the same hope through Christ our Savior. Let's pray.